story. Welcome to Pilot Boys. I'm your host today, Karen, and I have a very special guest. Name yourself. My name now, is now plebeian. My name is Caesar, the host, the true host of Pilot Boys. The, the plebeian. OG. So, what are we doing today, Karen? Today we are going to talk about. Wow, there's so much noise going on in the yeah, background. Right? You see why I pause so much now, Karen? Kareem. Do you see? Do you see why I did this, Carmen? So today we're doing Good Omens, the new TV show by Neil Gaiman. It's based on the book of the same name, but he also wrote it with Terry Pratchett. And we actually got to see it a little early because we went to a screening by KCRW. And we got to hear Neil Gaiman talk about the show a little bit. So we'll have some of that spliced in later on. I recorded it on my phone illegally. No, I mean, they didn't say no recording device. Yeah, they didn't. Did they? But well, I recorded the TV show also, so... Did you? Uh, yeah, I'll put that on the website so you guys can download it. That's bootleg. And let us know what you think. Anyway, so one of the one of the things that struck me in that interview and to guess is to kick this thing off is that he says that he dedicated this show to his late friend Terry Pratchett. Well, in this I was writing it for Terry Pratchett. Terry was my audience. I was making it for Terry, which meant that there were places where any temptation to cut corners or even to agree with the people who said, well, can't we just cut that bit? It was like, yeah, no. And you can really tell, I, I think. I read the book last year and it was a lot of fun. The premise of the show is essentially there are these two, there's good and evil, angel and demon, and it's the end times, basically. That's just the regular premise. But what did you think about the first episode? What are your general first it impressions? It was so great. It just... You could tell that it was made with a lot of love. Okay. A lot of care was put into it. What were your favorite things about it? I've talked about this before, but I'm a big fan of like world building, mm -hmm. and it felt like a like a its own world. It felt like the, I mean, it felt like the real world, but it also felt like like there's the like magical creating, there's yeah. like magical things around it. Like it felt like there's magic in this world. Yeah. I think for me, and I I should say. I'm a really big Neil Gaiman whimsy. fan. Whimsy. It felt whimsical. Yeah, there was a lot of whimsy, but there was also like a lot of life without explanation, which is some of the things that Neil Gaiman touches on when he does that interview. But his writing style is very like, this is what it is. This is what this is what the world is. And I'm not going to explain it to you. You're just going to have to figure it out through these characters and mm. their story. You know, I've, I've been in so many meetings with executives and executive producers and stuff where they say so what are the rules of this world and i'm like Do I, what are the rules of this one <laughs> <laughs> are we handed them when we turn up they kind of figure it out as you go along and a lot of the time you get it wrong and right away i guess to go against all of that the opening sequence is like a douglas adams basically like a tribute to his work because it's it's an opening sequence of like space and numbers and basically all things that have made up time but it's also like some wit in there like some dry mm. british wit yeah that was 
the moment that it felt the most like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Yeah, and I mean, and Neil Gaiman talked about it. How he, I mean, since his 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 work was so connected, or not connected, but he he was he lived with his work so much that he was able. He was just like, hey, like I'm able to write like this too. With Douglas Adams. Yeah, because he wrote Don't Panic, his biography, and he was able to channel that voice, like the the British humor, the traditional British humor, as he called it. Yeah. So building three minutes at the beginning that just sort of feels like what hitchhikers might have felt like if they were doing it today was was a lovely tip of the hat where that came from and also of course good omens began after i'd written don't panic the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy companion and had gone at the end of that oh i can write in this style this thing this classic english humor style i can do this it's like it's obviously dry it's very matter of fact. Yeah. Like these are the things as they transpired. And because it's told in such a straight faced way, like it makes it all the more hilarious. Yeah. Which is something that he also brought up. The idea that like when he was casting the show, a lot of people thought because it's kind of a it's a ridiculous, absurdist show, which is I feel like the premise to a lot of British humor is kind of absurdist in that way. But if you play it for laughs, it's not as funny. If you play it straight, that's where the humor is. You find the humor in the material, not necessarily in like the acting. Mm-hmm. Not to say that comedic acting is bad, but I think that that was something that you could tell right away from the show. Yeah, and that's also what makes it makes it feel like it's a more lived-in world, because like in real life, like we laugh at we don't our speak, lives. You yeah, know? we don't like speak we, in soliloquies and or, shit or like, like that. jokes. We don't like write our own jokes. Like we. Like, we realize that our lives are kind of ridiculous sometimes, and, like, a series of events unfolded that we had no idea would unfold, and that's what's hilarious. Yeah. So, the let's get into a recap before we get into, like, the thematic stuff. There's an angel and a demon. Angel name, a zero fill, right? zero fill. And then Crowley, who's the demon. the demon, and they've been they've around, been since, around the since the beginning of the earth. You don't want to say it at the same time? They've been around since the beginning of the Earth, and it's now the present, and it's going to be end times. Like, it's going to be the apocalypse. Crowley gets the message that he needs to deliver the baby, or he needs to deliver the Antichrist to, it's like a politician of some sort, or a diplomat. Yeah, an American diplomat. this baby swap kind of happens, which is also, like, the humor of the show. It's, It's just, like, this absurdist take on what would happen if the apocalypse was trying to be thwarted by an angel and a demon because they got they developed a taste for earth essentially mm-hmm. and that's that's pretty much the recap of the first episode and it also kind of sets up the entire series and it wraps up what the book is kind of about except in the book there's a bigger focus on Agnes Nutter who is part of the subtitle of the book but you don't meet her until episode 2 Neil Gaiman says which we haven't seen by the way so I mean, I think the the main thing that stuck out to me was that it's a it's a telling of the apocalypse, but it's a telling of the apocalypse in the way that like Monty Python or or, or like a British a British you know I think like, Monty Python is a good but like a British humor avenue would tell it, and that like it's serious but it's not serious. Mm, I feel like it's we keep absurdist. saying British humor without like. 
saying what it is, you know? Like, well, it just is British humor. <laughs> you don't know British humor? You know, you know what I mean? Yeah, I get you. But I, I think that, like, I mean, most people understand what British humor is now. Like, the, the classic ones are, because there's so many different ones. But for the most part, like, the classic one, I think Monty Python is, like, the best way to understand it. Because I know Douglas Adams has worked with like British, British quote unquote humorists or like things like that. Mm-hmm. So it's just, it's just kind of like. This is dry wit. It's more, it's more wit than anything. It's not always dry. No. Cause they, the actors, you know, they deliver the lines. Spice things up. But yeah, it's, it's a retelling of the apocalypse in a dry <laughs> traditional British humor. It's as if. Neil Gaiman, Douglas Adams, Terry Pratchett decided to to sit down and tell a hilarious story about the apocalypse. Mm-hmm. It doesn't feel so much as like this is like, you know, doom and gloom. This is like a complete tonal opposite of something like American Gods, which is like every god is kind of treated with this reverence. Like every god has to be treated like as it's this grand thing. This is kind of like, oh, yeah, mm-hmm. that's coming soon. Like the apocalypse is coming soon. We should probably look into that kind of thing yeah well i mean now that you start talking about it you're a big fan of both neil gaiman yeah i'm a big fan of neil gaiman which i've already mentioned multiple times yeah but let's talk about how big of a fan you are so i've read all his most of his novels except for one or two but i think what, what strikes me most about neil gaiman is the way that he tells even when it's stories that you already know he tells it in a way where one you get to understand it in new ways like he has a story about it's called murder mysteries and he has, it's it's basically like a retelling of like lucifer mm-hmm. told through this new this like dude who had he's like a 40 year old who hasn't really done much with his life but essentially it was just like one of the angels who like stops lucifer from ever from anything happening and he's that angel gets reincarnated as a human kind of thing so he tells like these stories that we already know but he tells them in a different way. Mm-hmm. And I, I know that seems kind of like a, a basic understanding of it, but it truly is. Like, we know that the apocalypse in stories is going to come because of the Antichrist or whatever, right? And he's telling that story, but instead of, like, it just being a traditional story of, like, he was raised evil and, like, he's going to be this agent of doom, he gets swapped in, like, the folly of man. Like, it's just humans are stupid and they fucked up the end of the world essentially Mm -hmm. and i think that's just starting off right away with like a humorous tone makes it a more interesting show we've seen serious takes of the apocalypse already we've seen Mm -hmm. supernatural or just like even the stories that we like what you're mentioning like these are stories that we grew up on but we grew up on them as like cautionary tales as like this is good and evil this is why we do the things we do. This is why we believe these things. Um, yeah, because I think the show consequences. Yeah, you know? the the show doesn't take a moral stance at all. I think it presents both sides very neutrally, and that like they're both kind of fun to see and watch them interact. Because I feel like every time you see a portrayal of good and evil, like you're meant to pick a side. Mm-hmm. But this one truly feels like they're just old friends hanging out. Not necessarily like one of them is, is good, one of them is bad. Like, I don't think 
they want the audience to get a sense of like one person is right one person is wrong mm-hmm. i mean i think the apocalypse is supposed to be like the ultimate fight mm-hmm. of good versus evil yeah and i mean I- eventually the triumph is supposed to be the straight tor- the straight telling of it is the antichrist comes and it basically fucks up the earth and then god kind of saves the people who believed in him or whatever mm-hmm. right this is more of like a I mean, it's almost like a Lion King one and a half telling of it. Like, mm-hmm. it's maybe we already know point A to B. We already know everything that happens. But this is what happens in between all of that. And, like, this mm-hmm. is the kind of stuff that happened in between. And I don't, I don't know. I think that the first episode kind of sets it up as, like, you truly don't know what could happen. Yeah. You could know that, like, there's three options. He could become the end of the world. He could become a decent person. Nothing happens. Or none of that. <laughs> I don't even know. What I'm I saying. feel like you lost your train I of lost thought. My train of thought. <laughs> well, I actually wanted to continue talking about um, the idea that we're looking at it as, you know, uh, Aziraphale and Crowley, like they're old friends. Yeah, which is a device that he uses a lot. Like he checks in on people throughout their life. Neil Gaiman, he's done this for several things. He just likes to check in on different points of life because for them time isn't as like impactful as it is for us Mm -hmm. yeah and i mean and the show does a really good job of like right off the bat like even with like the title sequence like we see them just traversing through earth you know from the beginning of time to the present time and it's just them and it's like they're unchanging but they're supposed to be complete opposites you know one is an angel and the other was a demon but i like that in the show, like the lines of like what is good and what is bad, like that gets mixed. Like it's all, all gray. Yeah, there isn't like absolute good. There isn't absolute evil. Yeah. Well, I mean that that's that's kind of the the how they get involved with the apocalypse. I mean, obviously they they're angels and demons, but Crowley suggests that we should stop the apocalypse by raising him to just be kind of neutral. Mm-hmm. Like you hint him to be good. And I'll hint him to be bad. And then he'll just be like a decent person, like a regular person. And I think that's supposed to be like this neutral area of where the show's kind of morality lies. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like leading up to inevitability, mm-hmm. right? Like in the show too, Crowley's what mission yeah. is to raise him to like to actually bring up, uh, upon the apocalypse, right? Yeah. To raise the Antichrist. To bring up upon the apocalypse. Yeah. Whereas Aziraphale's mission is to just keep an eye on Crowley. Yeah. Right? Like, it's not even to... Like, heaven is like... Our, yeah, like, it's inevitable. The apocalypse is going to happen. The Antichrist is already born. Yeah. All you have to do is just tell us what's going on. You know, just be our eyes on the ground. Because this is already a thing that's written and it's going to happen. Yeah. And I think that the, the, the inev- inevitability is also an interesting thing because... If this Antichrist doesn't work, that's not to say that there won't be another one. I think that they're just so wrapped up in their lives on Earth that all they care about is... I mean, I I think that one of the things that we start to see is that their idea of time starts to change. They were once, like, they just went through thousands of years of, you know, living on Earth. But as time went on, since they enjoy their time now, like... Now they're truly counting their days. And I think in that way, they infuse these two celestial beings or like these two 
non-human beings with human traits. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of like the entire beat of the show. Like the fact that these two supernatural beings are just like bickering humans who just want to eat more steak or drink more tea or eat more sushi. And drive fast cars. Yeah, exactly. Like they have, they've developed their own taste for life mm-hmm. in a way that they didn't have it when the earth had first started. Yeah. I also like that in the show too, where Crowley, like he's encouraging Aziraphale to help not bring it about, you yeah. know, because he's like, well, what's like the concept of eternity is no, like it's much scarier than, than living on earth. Like they love earth so much. Yeah. The idea that it's not going to exist anymore scares both of them. Yeah, and I think we get to see, like, the stark difference between, like, a true bad and, like, a true good when they both come in contact with, like, each other's sides. So Crowley comes in contact with other demons, and they're like, well, what have you truly done that's bad recently? Mm-hmm. And he's just like, well, I've done these things. And he's like, yeah, it's not that bad. So I, I think they've become human in some ways. We're like, I mean, almost... It's like them coming together in a union to raise a child. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's it, cute. Is it like a, <laughs> is it like an allegory for like a queer relationship? You think? <laughs> Maybe. Could be. Like they, I mean, they're they're life partners. Yeah, truly. Like they've truly, known each yeah. other <laughs> since the like beginning, thousands yeah. of years. But also to bring it back to like inevitability and determinism too. Mm-hmm. Like, at the beginning of the show, like, when man is first created. Mm-hmm. Um, Which, before we get into that, how'd you feel about that reinterpretation? Of the Garden of Eden? Yeah, being too... I mean, okay, so there was a couple things that stood out to me. One, both of them are black. But two, it was centered from the female's perspective. Like, it didn't, it didn't look like... I mean, to me, I don't know, based, just based on, like, me watching it. It looked like they were saying that man came from the rib of Eve instead of Eve came from, you know what I mean? Mm. Like there was kind of like that relate that the fact that we got to see her experience first, that seemed more important than the other experience. Mm -hmm. Like she's like the impetus. Yeah. I mean, she is the driving. I mean, that's how she's always portrayed. Like she's the reason why, but it's always like, she's the reason why Adam did the bad thing. Not like, she did this thing and Adam followed her. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, I think the reason why I bring it up is because in that telling of it, it didn't seem so much as like, hey, she con- she was convinced by the serpent to do that. It seemed like she was just genuinely like just ate it and he ate it of his own volition instead of being like, oh, you know, she, she, con- she told me to do that. Mm. No, I mean, the actors played it very subtly. I mean, it was wordless. Yeah. The Adam and Eve were non-speaking roles yeah but i mean the way the actors acted it out like you could tell their facial expressions like when eve bit the apple and adam followed like she raised her eyebrow like yeah we're both doing this together yeah and like this bad thing and it's kind of sexy okay (laughs) and that's what i saw in that i felt like there were there was definitely something there in that like the fact that he made adam and eve black which, I mean, probably realistically, like they, they were probably black. Yeah. Primordial Adam and primordial You know what I mean? Eve. But, uh, I mean, they probably had, like, six-pack abs. You know, I mean, they like, were very sexy. They were Adam super sexy, yeah. He had a big old dick. You know? <laughs> we saw it. It was there. Eve had a big old dick. 
You know what it is. Mm -hmm. So, as you were saying, sorry. In the show, Crowley convinces, takes on the form of a snake and convinces Eve. We don't actually see him convince Eve. We just yeah, that's why I was that's why I was confused because the only thing we see is him popping up after she takes a bite, and that's why I was like, what? It didn't seem so much as like a. I was convinced to do this bad thing. And even Crowley's kind of like, if you put a sign in front of, like a don't touch sign in front of like the only good thing around here, of course you're going to do it. Yeah, like why, well he mentions like, why not put it, like you put it right in the middle of the garden. Why not put it in a mountaintop? Exactly. But he brings up the fact that like, wasn't this all kind of supposed to happen like this anyway? Yeah. And then Aziraphale, like later in that same scene, we see Adam break through the garden's wall and they both go into the desert. Yeah. Like together. they're leaving the Garden of Eden. But he he goes with a flaming sword. Which, which Aziraphale was, gave him. Yeah. And so Crowley brings up like, well, why do you give him the sword? Like in Aziraphale's mind, like, oh, I did it to help them out. But at no point in time were those his orders. You know, he was already acting of his own volition. Yeah. And that, that gets into the segues perfectly into like the determinism or like nature versus nurture. All those sorts of like philosophical ideas, and yeah, it starts I think with that first that first step, and then obviously with like raising the child. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it starts with Aziraphale doing something outside of his station that he didn't necessarily need to, but it's in that area where there's nothing against him doing that. Mm -hmm. And also, like if he's if he's an angel, isn't everything he does a good thing? Yeah. Well, you I know? think that that's Gaiman, like Gaiman and Pratchett, playing with those ideas of like, there's these sort of like assumptions with titles, where like, God can't do this because he's all he's all knowing, all powerful, so therefore he he shouldn't. Like it's like these these assumptions in logic or reason, where like people can't go outside of their station because that's how they were created, and I mm -hmm. think that still goes to the idea of determinism, where like. If he was truly all good and God made him like that and God already knows what's going to happen, then he was made to do that in the first place. Yeah. I went yes. all through this whole way to, to do that. <laughs> like, Sorry. That's exactly what I was trying to get, where I was trying yeah. to get to. Just like, is there a plan or are they doing this of their own free will? Yeah. Are we human or are we dancer? That's, you know, that's Brendan the Flowers. real question, you know? Brendan Flowers is a... He's an icon. He's a he's a prophet. He's a yikon. He's a prophet. All right, so let's move into <laughs> the nature versus nurture argument. What do you think? Do you think it truly matters? Do you think nurture in the in the show or both. in life? Like this is a big philosophical in both. question. <laughs> how do you think the show plays with it, or how do you think the show portrays it? I don't know. I mean, I just saw the episode. Like the you'll probably you probably have a better no, answer. No, I'm talking about because, just the first episode. But the first episode, I mean, it makes it seem like, you know, I don't know if I can, if I have a definite answer for that because... I have an answer. Okay, that's nice. <laughs> what is it? I think the show just spits on it, like it shits on it. On inevitability? On the idea of nature versus nurture. Mm. Like just straight up. Like they, they, I think it was even like a, like a ruse. Like they thought that, like that was a straight telling Aziraphale and Crowley telling the audience that this is about nature versus nurture. But then, as you watch it, we didn't have any impact on his his mm. his nurture. 
So I think the show is kind of denying that kind of outright. Like, I think part of the the morals of the show is this gray area where it doesn't want to lean too far into any extreme. Mm-hmm. So instead of saying nature and nurture to lean one side on it, they just say it just kind of is. Mm-hmm. Like, you just kind of are both. There's no real answer to it. Yeah. That's what I think. I don't know. What do you think? No, I agree. There, it, that's And that's why it's so hard to answer the question, because we haven't finished watching the show. We just saw one episode. Yeah. But if this is how it, it's going to continue, then, then, yeah, it is. It is both, isn't it? That's the answer. Yeah. Or... I mean, is it a self-fulfilling prophecy? Like, this this kid that was raised normal, like, if he finds out that he's the Antichrist, is he automatically evil? I don't know. Is the child of Hitler evil by nature? I don't think so, necessarily. Wait, you mean, like, baby Hitler? No, like... Or his child. I mean, because this, this like kid... Son? I think what's interesting about it being the child of Satan is that it's not necessarily Satan... But lineage would tell him that he is Satan. Mm. And I mean, maybe I feel a personal, like, I feel a personal attachment to that story because I felt like as a kid, I had, like, this prophetic telling of how I would be as a kid, like, as an adult. But I denied it. I just thought that that was not who I was going to be. Mm. So I don't think nature necessarily defines who you are. I mean, of, sure, of course, there's, like, genetics and things like that. But I don't think nature necessarily dictates who you're going to be. And I love stories like I love stories that kind of play with that idea of like this is who your family was and you can try to live up to it or you can deny it. It's up to mm-hmm. you. I mean that's kind of what Danny was doing in Game of Thrones like she was she wanted to be a part of that lineage. But there's another great story that I really like called uh, it's Uncanny X-Men. And there's this comic book where basically like they're the wet work like suicide version of the X-Men. Like they would kill people and shit like that. So there was this baby version of Apocalypse. And this one guy, without telling anyone, he steals the baby. He told everyone that he killed it. He steals the baby and he raises it. He raises it to just be like a normal kid. And he wanted to see if he could raise it to be like a decent person. Mm-hmm. Like if, if Nurture really could do that. Yeah, it's like the same question I asked you. Like if the child finds out that he's an Antichrist, will he live up to his name? It depends how much that matters to him. Mm-hmm. Because as far as we know... The story was unfolding without us watching. And I think that's, again, part of that, like, hilarity and absurdity, whether it's British or not, is that the real story was happening off screen. We were just worried about, like, watching Crowley and Aziraphale. Mm-hmm. We were kind of tricked into, into thinking that. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that I want to talk about now, how did you feel about, like, the card thing? Like... The all the like flourishes with like cards, yeah, all, all all that all that shit. And the magic tricks, yeah. It was it's cute. You and mean the narrator, even, everything. Yeah, I liked it. I thought it was a cute little like flourish. Is it in the book too? Like that, like continuing, like motif. I don't remember. Mm. I heard the audiobook, so I, in terms of like visuals, I think it's like a great visual. Like I think, especially with the baby swap, that's. That's what you're thinking of, right? Like the baby swap vision. Yeah. I think it worked on many levels because it helped explain to the audience what was going on or what was going to happen. Mm-hmm. 
and it kind of like clued it like you know like it, it like f- made the audience feel like we were participating like yeah. let's keep track of like this trick and see what like how it ends like how it unfolds yeah which we should we should set up set up the scene it's essentially there's this convent a satanic place they're going to deliver this diplomat's child and they're going to swap it out for the antichrist but a pregnant woman just kind of lands on their doorstep and needs to be helped immediately and then that's where you know the baby gets swapped more than all those like visual aids i also think that this is like the pivotal scene of the entire first episode is i mean the tone is already set up but i think it sets up kind of like the looseness of everything mm-hmm. like this is going to play a major part into the entire series and it kind of just like it's this ridiculous thing that happens. It's like slapstick almost, but it's done. I don't know with grace. I think mm-hmm. it's done like a. It's like a magic trick. Yeah, you don't see what's actually happening, and I think the same way happens with the big reveal at the end, where we were watching the wrong story the entire time. Mm-hmm. Like a sleight of hand. Yeah, I mean, I think that the best way to describe the first episode is like a sleight of hand. Yeah, I mean, I also like that. Uh... Like, this is, like, a, a reoccurring motif throughout the episode, like, a magic trick. And then Aziraphale is also, like, an amateur... Like, he's obsessed with, like, amateur magic. Yeah. Even though he can actually do magic. You yeah. Know, even though he's a magical being. Well, I mean... I, lo- I love I, that idea. I like that idea because it's, like, the difference between earning your, you know, your your craft or, like, what you can do. Like, building it up... Versus, like, being born with it. Like, a zero fill can do all these crazy magic, magical feats. That's how he was created. But other people had to learn how to do these, like, little flourishes. We see how much Crowley and Aziraphale have fallen in love with Earth and with humans, too. But also I each think. other, I think. Yeah, yeah. I like, think, I mean... Like, the drunk scene, like, them getting drunk together... One, I loved how it was filmed because it was like extreme close-ups, very, very uncomfortable. Like, but it was also hilarious. Like, it just felt so like, it felt like the actors were just trapped together and they were just like like riffing off of each other. Yeah, one of the things I want to highlight more than anything is that this show really, really nails Neil Gaiman's voice, and I'm sure Terry Pratchett is in it too, but. <laughs> That's I think Terry Pratchett's voice was in the material versus Neil Gaiman's was in the visual because he wrote it obviously. But uh Um let's talk about the acting. Yeah, the acting the was actor, great. The actors. Like we haven't talked about how great there was definitely I mean we should have put this in the in the first the impressions part, but mm-hmm. Yeah, David Tennant was fantastic. He's such a great fucking actor. I love. I actually think Michael Sheen stole I, it at for least you? stole it for me. Okay, because I feel like David Tennant. Yeah, we know he could be a bad guy. You know, we know he could be. He could do like this, like kind of slapsticky, bad boy esque. Do we thing. know that though? I I mean I feel like he kind of did it. I don't think he was like. I think he was like truly evil, in Jessica yeah, Jones. Yes. But he was also trying to be cool at the same time. Well, he was kind of cool. <laughs> Jessica. But, you know, we, we know that he can be sinister. At least that's what I'm thinking of. Yes. I'm thinking that he can be sinister. Definitely. 
but also kind of. I mean, I like I liked him as a villain. Yeah. And I mean, that's he was the best part. Yeah. But he didn't seem like a villain to me in this. That's yeah. That's what I'm saying. Like we we know that he could be a good guy with Doctor with Doctor Who, and we also know that he can be sinister. And in this role, he's combining both of those those things, right? Yeah. Where I think Michael Sheen, I've only ever really seen him, and Neil. Neil Gaiman. Neil Gaiman. Um, Mr. Gaiman, please. Mm-hmm. Oh, I can't. I'm not a fir- on a first name no. basis for him. No, I'm sorry. I don't have that clearance. But Neil mentions this in the interview. In the interview that like Michael Sheen thought that he was going to be cast as Crowley, and he's like, I don't want this. Like Mike- Michael Sheen has always been a bad guy, and so I love seeing him like the soft, the soft loving side of him yeah. is really great. Yeah, and, and so that's why I think he, Michael Sheen, at least stole the show for me. Yeah, and one of the things that Neil said uh, to add to that is that Michael Sheen said that the way that he played this and the only way that he saw how to play Aziraphale was to fill him full of love, like to be a character full of love. Essentially, yeah, he loves everything, and especially Crowley, because they've known each other for so long. Mm-hmm. And as I say, Michael decided that the key to Aziraphale was he's an angel. He loves things. He loves crawling. <laughs> loves books. Loves food. Loves wine. <laughs> loves things. And that's how he plays it. And it's just beautiful. And I think that that's something that you truly get with watching this, is that this show felt like a labor of love. It felt like you had to really invest yourself from every level. And I think Neil Gaiman... As someone who knows and lived and wrote the material, put himself into it, and if it felt like it nailed his voice for the first time, in a way that I don't think I've seen from any of his work, because I've I've all all the adaptations of his stuff have been great. There's there's none that's been necessarily bad, but I feel like it it wasn't there in the voice in the Neil Gaiman voice. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you compare this show to American Gods or even Coraline. I haven't seen Coraline, which is why I just brought up American Gods. They're, they look, they feel, look, are completely different in tone and acting and and everything, really. So it's it's crazy to me that like they're from the same author. Really? You know, I mean, in terms of like storytelling and con like concepts mm-hmm. premise. I mean, obviously they're they're very in line with each other. No, but. Like, American Gods is, almost has nothing in common with Good Omens. Do you think? The, would you I disagree? Mean, there's, there's gods. That's about it. Yeah, that's like, besides the premise. Yeah. No, I, I don't think that there's there's much that's, that's similar at all. I understand that Neil Gaiman is more than just, like, funny or more than just, like, kid stuff or more than just, like... Because I think American Gods is probably one of the most serious works I've read by him. Because it's about war, I think. That's kind of the premise of the show. It's about war and finding who you are. And this is about two friends and how they're living through the apocalypse. Mm-hmm. So, I, yeah, I think that they're much different in tone. But I don't think... I think the material has a through line in that, like, there is this meandering quality of like we're not going to explain what the world is. You're going to kind of have to live in it. But it wasn't until I think it it truly just needed 
Neil Gaiman to be involved with writing it, being the showrunner and the producer. Like he, it's all those things that were required to 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 get this chemistry. And I mean, I think there are a couple examples of authors who were involved with their adapted works that made it work really well. I think Gone Girl is a great example of that. She wrote the screenplay for that. So it's just, it's hard to do, but I think it's possible. And I think more than anything, authors don't want to let go of their babies. (laughs) And I think this is a good example of that. Mm -hmm. And when you let them handle their own babies, you get better babies. You get the best babies. The best babies. The baby swaps. Is this the best baby? Are you my baby? What would you rate the show? A four point, I don't know. I actually want to give it a five. In terms of pilots, like. Wow. I kind of want to give it a five. You I think just, it's because we really enjoyed it. it. You think it's because we watched it early and like we're I part of the like the VIP in crowd, yeah. you know? Like you're an influencer. I mean, and by proxy, I'm an influencer. If you have to ask me, that's then I am. Did you ask me? I didn't ask you. Oh. Uh, well, yeah, I am. I I stated it. It's a fact. Oh. You're an influencer. <laughs> I mean, if you must know. <laughs> uh huh. What? Uh, let's. Oh, why are you an influencer, sir? I'm not an influencer. So why would you rate it four? No, what? I said five. Oh, why would you rate it five? Because it was great. Yeah? I just, we've we've given it so much praise already. I feel like we've said everything we needed to say about it. It was just, it was just really good. And I think it was well made. It was well acted. The visuals were great. The color palettes were great. Yeah. Like, it just, it felt like such a vibrant a live world. show. Yeah. yeah. Like the the contrast between hell and heaven and how like they're obviously not earth and you know and Neil brings this up also in in the interview too and how he framed that. Yeah, I just think it was like such a well-done show. Meticulously crafted, I think is mm-hmm. the best way. I think I'd give it a 5 too. It was like a really I mean, in terms of pilot, it gives you everything you want. Mm-hmm. It gives you it gives you all the characters, which were really, really well-crafted characters. It gives you this great setting that was crafted very well. And the actors did a great job. And just Neil Gaiman being involved, to me, gives you, like, two stars extra. So it's seven? So it's a seven. Wow. Yeah. Out of ten now? Out of That's five. That's a low score. That's a C. Out of five, you fool. <laughs> Seven out of five, you fools. What's that? How, I think how that's. Much uh, is that? the, I don't think there's going to be a second season. It's a limited thing. Thank God. I hope so. Imagine, fool. You hope there's a second season? No, I hope there's not one. Oh, I hope there's not one either. But what if it's really good and they could do it? No, 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 no. no, no, no. no. A fool, a fool, chill, a fool. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah. No, you're so wrong. I love you, but you're wrong. Yeah. You're right. You're right. You're right. You're right, you're right, you're right, you're right. All right, that's it. Rate us. Are you my baby? <laughs> you already said it. I didn't, I didn't stop it. Damn it. Cut this, Michelle. Do the drums. It's just so cool to see a project of yours that's so close to the, to the source material. Um, which is, I suppose, part of what happens if you get person who wrote the original source material <laughs> as the writer <laughs> then as the showrunner so that nobody can mess with what the writer did. <laughs>